action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we went to the movies when they were reopened in April. <laughs> and we went many times. I really, I worked out that I think I went over 30 times to the cinema since it opened again. Whoa. So that's about one a week. Yeah. Sun- I mean, I love my double Sundays, don't I? I think I went about four times. <laughs> Is that include press screenings? I went to screenings as well. So I, I paid four times and I went to press screenings. So Were most of your press screenings digital? So were they just like yeah. a Vimeo link? Yeah, lots of digital screenings. But some some films they refused to. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, well obviously a lot of the films got delayed, didn't they? Or they just they were releasing cinemas, but they just said we're not sending out a digital yeah. screener. Yeah, even if there were simultaneous releases, like digital release and cinema release, they wouldn't do digital screeners they would only do screenings in cinemas i wonder why that is because if they're putting it out onto digital anyway what's the difference of watching it on either itunes or a vimeo link yeah i don't know i i think maybe there's there's two things so i think it's honorable if they are looking to support cinemas and the cinematic experience like that's Mm. great and that's one thing but there are other things to consider such as people unable to get to cinemas for whatever reason um so i think it's sort of like an ongoing issue that i don't know we'll see what happens yeah because now we have to wear masks again yeah it's just not a nice experience no it's not it's really not sitting there for because films are not short these days yeah and if you've got glasses hours with a mask on yeah exactly steaming up glasses trying to watch spielberg make something good out of I want to live in America. I wondered why you were singing that early. (laughs) Is that your top film of the year? (laughs) I haven't seen it yet. I may go see it once we finish recording now. Depends if I can be asked. It's It's long, um... isn't it? But I think it's been getting really good reviews. Well, yeah. I mean, Spielberg's an odd one where for 15 years he seemed to be shitting over everything that he did. And then he made two films that seemed to edge back towards him going... Oh, mm-hmm. I'm a filmmaker. I'm not just a popcorn salesman. Okay, and which films are those? Uh, the Post. Oh, yeah, so I've not seen that. Mm, and Bridge of Spies. I've not seen that either. They both looked a so, bit dour. Well, that's it, right? That's Spielberg is either... You know, Spielberg has this bite to him. People seem to think he's just this sentimental guy that made E.T. or mm. Hook. But really, Spielberg's a dark character. E.T. is a dark film. Hook is a dark film. Children are kidnapped. Yeah. The children. Yes, Yes, one of them is annoying and she sings a song. I want my mommy. I really want to rewatch Hook. I might do that tonight. Rather than go see West Side Story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, weirdly, it came out 30 years ago this month. Oh, weird. Maybe that's why I've got the itch. That sort of... Something's You've ding- got the 30-year hook itch. Yeah, get your hook yes. out. But 2021, we're going to run down our top and our bottoms. Why don't we start with our bottom? Joshua, what is your number three bottom of 2021? My, top, my number three bottom film of the year 
and this is heartbreaking because I was so excited for it. Were you about to say your top bottom? My top bottom three, (laughs) bottom three, (laughs) is Candyman, okay? Um, And it's directed by Nia DaCosta, written by Jordan Peele, Wynne Rosenfeld, and Nia DaCosta. It's a direct sequel to the 1992 film um, directed by Bernard Rose, and it picks up sort of a couple of decades later, still set around Cabrini Green in uh, Chicago, which is the home of the legendary Candyman. Um, and the the protagonist this time is an artist called Anthony McCoy, who's played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. And he, I think he learns about the legend of the Candyman. He gets kind of obsessed with it and he starts to, it starts to kind of feed into his art um and obviously people start to die and you know it no one really believes that it's this mythical killer it probably is Anthony or somebody but then that's the problem with the film is it just starts to completely unravel um and it's a shame because it opens really strongly it opens with the the legend of Helen who was the um the main character in the first Candyman played by Virginia Madsen. And obviously by the end of that film, spoiler, she becomes the new Candyman. And so this film kind of takes that baton, runs with it for the first sort of few minutes and very cleverly has her now become the urban legend that everyone's talking about in Cabrini Green. It's very, very clever. Um, but then it just doesn't really know who it's, who the main character is. Is it Anthony McCoy? Is it his partner, gallery director Brianna Cartwright, who's played by uh, Teona Paris? Um, you know, it, it it becomes really fragmented. Doesn't really doesn't really do the mystery angle particularly effectively. And then Jordan Peele obviously did Get Out, which is fantastic. He did Us, which is great. And he's become known as the the sort of like the the social commentary voice in horror. And so he tries to bring that to Candyman, which is a great idea, but the film struggles to marry the existing mythology of this world with this new sort of interpretation of Candyman. And it just starts to get more and more confused to the point that at the end, it really goes for a gut punch ending and it sort of doesn't work. You know, it just drags in Tony Todd in this sort of CGI cameo as a young Candyman. It's a shame. It's a real shame. Had you seen it, Rob? Yes, I did see it. And I remember I texted you saying, oh, I'm going to go see the new Candyman. And you said, have you seen the original? And I said, no, I haven't got time. You go. And you said, you need to see the original. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So I cancelled my tickets. I watched the original. Then the following night, I saw the new one. And mm. I'd never need to see either of them ever again what i did like about this new one was the backstory was told to us using chinese shadow puppets which i think was gorgeous it made no sense to use (laughs) chinese shadow puppets but it looked great it was a really cool thing yeah beautiful really cool thing to introduce into the film narratively it made no sense because you know Candyman isn't chinese chicago yeah and As far as I could remember from the original, he didn't give a shit about puppets. Mm -hmm. But, no, I didn't like it. It was completely forgettable. I I can't remember what the social commentary was. I think something about... Was it something about... um, What's it called when they take shitty bits of town and make them into new bits of town, but then push out people um... they've just kicked out? 
oh my god uh it happens in london all the time what's it called all the time every time a starbucks opens you it always gets well whatever that oh, gen- is it's gen- that. Gentrification. gentrification there you go <laughs> yeah so it might as well just be called candy man gentrification yeah shame candy man the urban legend is if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror he appears in the reflection and it kills you who would do that Candyman. 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 Well, we're still alive. This isn't funny! My third bottom of the year is House of Gucci. Oh. This is the biographical drama detailing the events leading up to the murder of fashion brand Gucci head honcho Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver. It's directed by full-time Grumpy Pants and part-time filmmaker Ridley Scott. It's in part a romance between Maurizio, Adam Driver, and Patrizia Reggiani, played by Lady Gaga. and how her manipulative behaviour allows Maurizio to rise to power ahead of his uncle, Aldo, Al Pacino, and cousin, Paolo, played by Jared Leto. And it eventually leads her to have him murdered with the help of Pina, played by Salma Hayek. Tonally, this film is all over the place. A brilliant cast, yes, underused. But tonally, this film is all over the place. Adam Driver is acting in a very nuanced character study. Adam Driver has a sort of face where if he does nothing, he says so much. Yeah. And that is a brilliant skill as an actor. Lady Gaga is basically acting in the talky bits of a music video. She's a firecracker. Al Pacino is Al Pacino. Jared Leto is caked in prosthetics and a fat suit and he's in a high camp comedy and he makes the strangest animal noises throughout (laughs) by way of his version of an Italian accent I think the aim here is to capitalize on the camp success of things like Ryan Murphy's TV shows like American Crime Story and American Horror Story and Ratchet and that one about um, Joan um, Joan Crawford and yeah. uh, Betty Davis feud. making feud. Yeah, so things like that. High high camp, high comedy. But the issue here is that the period of time that's being covered, the film is set between the mid to late 70s to the mid to late 90s. So it's a good 20, 25 year period. Not a lot is allowed to breathe. A lot happens in the film, but it feels like not a great deal of it has any weight and certain events like Maurizio having to escape to um, neutral Switzerland to avoid being arrested for some sort of tax evasion kind of happens out of nowhere it, it we're not allowed that isn't allowed to build up the different acting styles not only do they render scenes feeling weird and disjointed but just going from a shot to a shot or a cut to a cut it feels like it's all cobbled together from sort of a a mismatched hodgepodge of rehearsals because the different styles and tones are so wildly different it's very very jarring 
there's no laser focus here. And that is 100% Ridley Scott's responsibility. He's the director. He's the conductor. He should be making sure that everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet. And unfortunately, they're not. And when the murder happens about 140 minutes into the film, I was so past caring if, if I actually did fucking care at all. No one is redeemable not even the victim, because they're not really characters. They're just placeholders in fancy clothes. And what's the most tragic about the film? The final three minutes is actually the most interesting. Hmm. How did the police investigate? How did they find out that Patrizia was the one who put the hit out on her ex-husband? How did they convict her? That's the story that should have been told. Not this weird fucking romance and power grab nonsense that we spend two and a half hours slodging through when the credits rolled and i turned around to see how many people were still in the cinema there were two girls asleep on the back row (laughs) they they were of the age where they must have seen adam driver in girls and they must have been listening to lady gaga's music for ages so they are the target audience that they are the people that the the casting is drawing in and they were asleep Did you see it? No, I wanted to because I felt like it was going to have this really operatic, sort of melodramatic, almost showgirls-esque sort of thing going for it. It just looked so heightened to ridiculousness um, that I wanted to see it. But then everyone was saying how boring it was and how flat it was, which is just bizarre. Just completely directionless. It's it's very, very strange. And, you know, I will say one thing. Jared Leto is always bitched at for making such wild acting choices. Mm. But I think for once, I think he's the key to making the better film here. If everyone considered it in the same way that Jared Leto considered it, which is like an over-the-top parody camp comedy, then mm-hmm. it would have been more consistent and it would have been a more enjoyable experience. But as it is, it's just a mess. There's yeah. no emotional weight. And that for me is the most incredibly disrespectful aspect to the memory of the murdered victim yeah it was a name that sounded so sweet so seductive synonymous with words style power but that name was a curse too I've been the Gucci all my life. Your name is in the history books. Paolo, you are Gucci, you need to dress the part. It's chic. My number two bottom film of the year is a film called There's Someone Inside Your House. It's a Netflix film. It's based on a book and it's sort of a, a slasher a very modern slasher film, I would say. And it's about a a teenager who starts in a new school um, in Nebraska, like a small town in Nebraska, and then her fellow students start to die in in gruesome ways. Um, The book is great. The book is really dark and different. Um, it's it's a bit of a slow read, but it does something really quite interesting with the you know the tropes of of slasher stories and sort of nineties horror, teen horror type stuff. Um, but the 
the film adaptation is just sort of you know it's it actually kind of reminded me of um cherry falls which is the 2000 film starring britney murphy which is sort of a slasher film where yeah jay moyer where it's sort of i do i like cherry falls but it has a similar problem where it's just sort of flat and toneless and there's someone inside your house is very similar where it's trying so hard not to be the kind of the fun horror it's trying not to be fun teen horror that it ends up just being really bizarrely gray it's just sort of completely charmless um it tries to say something really interesting about about bullying and and sort of teen life and all that kind of stuff and it just it just doesn't really work and it's got such a a badly um sort of shot ending yeah it's just it's a real shame because it's got it has some great ideas and it's based on on like a really solid book but it just it failed in the telling i think which is a shame had you seen it no i haven't even heard of it yeah it kind of sank it sank without a trace um, did and it actually, cinema Sid- or did it go straight to streaming? It was straight to Netflix. Okay, straight to Netflix. Who's in it? Yeah, it's. I mean, no one you've really ever heard of. Um, a young actress called Sydney Park, who's really, really good in it. Um, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a one-woman show, and it's terrible. Yeah, it's directed, <laughs> it. um, it's directed by a guy called Patrick Bryce. Who does he have a track record of making shit? I mean, he made a film called Creep and Creep Two. And the overnight, so sort of fairly, you know, low, low scale horror, basically. Isn't that strange? Low scale horror used to project people to like the superstardom, like um, John Carpenter. Mm. Yeah. But nowadays, low scale horror is kind of the the video bargain basement yeah. of the late eighties, early nineties. Absolutely. Isn't that funny how tastes completely change i, I think know. even john carpenter recognizes that he says in america i'm seen as a i'm seen as a bum in england <laughs> i'm seen as a bit of a has-been but in europe i'm seen as a god <laughs> you had no relationship with jackson no My number two bottom film of the year is Halloween Kills, directed by David Gordon Green, who directed Stronger with Jake Gyllenhaal, but also Halloween 2018. So he returns to direct the sequel part of a planned three-film trilogy of new Halloween films that are the direct sequels to John Carpenter's 1978 original film called Halloween. Jamie Lee Curtis returned as Laurie Stroud for the 2018 film. And that was her first Halloween film since 2002's Halloween Resurrection when her character oh. was killed off. So the slate After kissing was cleared. Michael, I'll see you in hell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So the slate was cleared. The timeline reset. Halloween 2018 came out and it was, it was a big success. It was a massive success. It proved that Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't know how to pronounce the word trauma because she always says, the film is about trauma. The film (laughs) is about trauma. (laughs) 
Is she in South Park as well? She can't say trauma. Trauma. <laughs> but now she's back again. And this film, Halloween Kills, picks up immediately where the 2018 Halloween left off. The boogeyman serial killer in the white mask, Michael Myers, is trapped in the basement of Laurie's home whilst it is seemingly engulfed in flames. 2018's Halloween was a breath of fresh air, or as fresh as the franchise could be made, but Halloween Kills is the fucking total opposite. It is stale, it is janky, it is predictable, boring, pointless, and there's no real narrative, is there? No, there isn't. Thematically, it wants to sort of investigate the idea of mob crowds and unlawfulness, but there's no nuance or no. any character development. There's no subtle. subtle and the weirdest fucking thing is legacy characters. So all these inconsequential side characters from the original 1975 film, characters that no one even fucking remembers are brought back and given key parts. So you get the kids who Laurie was babysitting in that first film and also that nameless nurse who appears in, what, 15 seconds of film at the beginning. She suddenly she's brought back you know the the term scraping the barrel is too kind a term <laughs> to describe this film because there is no fucking barrel the barrel <laughs> disappeared years ago this franchise has been milked so fucking dry that the udders on that cash cow all they can muster is a limp powdery <laughs> i I didn't hate it, but you have a real thing. You you just love Michael Myers. I don't love I don't love Michael Myers. I love Laurie Strode, and so I had real I had mixed feelings about Halloween Kills. Where I reviewed it for Radio Times, I gave it three stars. But the more I talked about it, and the more I thought about it over the, the next few <laughs> months, the more I fucking hated it. So it's like a weird <laughs> one that I think I need to rewatch to really take a stance on i hope jamie lee curtis got paid well because that's all she's getting out of it yet again she spends the majority of a halloween sequel bed bound yeah which is hilarious because that was a big complaint about the original halloween 2 yes well she was asleep in that one at least she was alive and awake and talking in this one she only gets out of the bed in this one to use a hypodermic needle to stab herself in the ass and scream so unconvincingly I laughed. The audience around me laughed. It was utterly, utterly ridiculous. And if I if I heard one more character scream, evil yeah. dies tonight. Oh yeah. I was gonna commit murder. It was just atrocious. This it's over. It's over. I don't even want the next one. Halloween ends. I don't want it. It's done. It was done with H2O, and even that was one film too many, even though I like it. This was a one film thing that has seemed to have like Michael Myers, refused to die for 43 years now. Just fucking pull the plug. You and Allison should not have to keep running. Evil dies tonight. So my number one top bottom film of 2021, and I can't believe actually it's all been horror again. I'm 
really disappointed in horror this year. <laughs> um, it's Spiral from the Book of Saw. This is the Chris Rock has gone through a divorce and he needs a quick <laughs> alimony payment now movie, right? Yeah. Okay. It's the ninth instalment in, in the Saw film series after Ugh. a good 10-year break, I think. Um, and on on the surface, it's a really fun idea. It's Chris Rock, who I believe produced it as well. It was his idea or... You know, yeah. he went to the went to the studio and was like, they said, what do you want to do? And he was like, I really want to do a Saw film. And it's like, yes, okay, let's see what <laughs> that looks like. Um, and he's good in it. You know, he's really good in it. He plays a cop who investigates when more people start dying in horrific sort of trap, trap disgusting ways. But it's just so obvious and it's so... Um, old and stale and just actually doing the same thing all over again so even though it wants to do bring saw up to date and try to do something different with it um it just doesn't bother and it wastes samuel l jackson he's in it for maybe two or three scenes and he's great in it but he's barely there and uh you know it's got a really predictable ending so at least the the original saws often had quite good sort of what the fuck endings whereas this one is just like yeah i thought so it's a real shame. It's such a shame. I keep Have saying that. Have they left that. it open for a sequel? Of course it leaves it open for a sequel. <laughs> uh, well, I look forward to next year when it's on your list again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whoever did this has another motive. They're targeting cops. <laughs> This shit's gonna go sideways fast. Someone's out there pulling all the strings. You wanna play games, motherfucker? My number one bottom of the year, 2021 is a film called Free Guy, directed by Sean Levy. He is the brains, question mark, behind A Night at the Museum, but he's also one of the brains, exclamation point, behind Stranger Things. Hey! So he has a very, very strange career in that he makes shit, but he also is involved in brilliant stuff. It also stars Ryan Reynolds, Jodie Comer, Joe Kerry and Taika Waititi. Ryan Reynolds plays Guy, a bank clerk who has no idea he is an NPC, which is a non-player character, basically a, a background character in a very popular multi-person video game, and the world he lives in is the video game. Meanwhile, in the real world, there's Millie. She's trying to find evidence that her coding has been stolen by tech CEO evil man Antoine Hovacelic, played by Taika Waititi, and used to power the game. Guy becomes self-aware. Hovacelic works to stop him escaping. A yawn fest of attempted comedy ensues. <laughs> it's a mix of Hardcore Henry, The Truman Show, and every fucking Ryan Reynolds comedy of the last five or six years. It's a fun idea. It's a fun concept. Well, is it? I'm so over Ryan Reynolds' stupid, silly man-child persona. <laughs> I could see that. Taika Waititi, he's clearly enjoying himself as the villain. 
and he's clearly been given free reign to improvise. You know, take a couple of takes, Taika. Do what mm-hmm. you want. But, and a bit like Ridley Scott, this is partly the fault of director Sean Levy. Taika is not reined in. He suffocates every scene he's in. He's, he's a showboater. So the other actors might as well not even be there. <laughs> I found him insufferable. I'm not his biggest fan, but I think he is funny in small doses, you know, bite size. Yeah, he's a good supporting... Well, that's the thing. He's a supporting character who yeah. thinks he's the lead because he doesn't give anyone else space. I found the whole thing wildly boring. So much so that I did something I never do and I left the screen to go pee. Uh. <laughs> I just didn't care if I missed any of it. And the fact is, when I came back after a couple of minutes... The film, the film was carrying on. I didn't miss any of it. No important information was, was imparted. The thing that I find most egregious is this. In the current climate where big budget films are always, very always nearly adapted from pre-existing IP, so the Marvel Universe, Star Wars, DC Comics, whatever, I think it's brilliant. I think it is amazing that such a huge budget, and this was, and I never talk about budgets, but I looked into this, 125 million just for the film. We're not wow. talking about not talking about advertising or prints or whatever. So such a huge budget was allocated for a story and a set of characters with no track record. This is a brand new original idea, even though it's you know inspired by things. But the crime here is that it's a wasted opportunity. It's boring and obvious, and it's completely forgettable. That's why it's my bottom film of the year. Did you enjoy it? I've not seen it. Ah. Yeah. It's one of those where I was like, yeah, interesting, fun idea, could be good. But I've always wanted to watch something more than that, so I just haven't got around to it. And now I probably won't. It's going to be one of those that finds its life on ITV2, or it's going to be someone's constantly played dvd do you not feel that maybe ryan reynolds has reached the point where he needs to do kind of what ryan gosling did and kind of just take a break and and wait a bit and age into a a, you know a different role because he's playing this guy now he's played this guy since Mm. blade trinity which was what 2003 four yeah he's played almost i mean he's he's a brilliant actor he's great in is it smoking smoking aces Oh, yeah, God, yeah. He's that was brilliant in Smoking Aces. He needs to do what Matthew McConaughey do, did and yeah. just be like, I'm not taking any of these roles that I've been pigeoned into. I'm going to wait for that that killer script and, and go, mm. you know, balls to the wall on that one. And for what I understand, Ryan Reynolds is taking a break. Oh, really? Yeah, he wants, says he wants to be he's with free. his family. He's a free guy. He is. A, he's a free guy? Good morning, Goldie. My name is Guy, and I live in Free City. I have everything I need. Except one thing. Hey! Excuse me! Hey! Hey, bud, you ever think that there's gotta be more? More than what? The stuff we do day after day. Literally not once. Today's gonna be different, Goldie. What are we looking at? We ran into each other the other day. How did you find me? I waited outside by the murder train. Guy, I have to tell you something. There is no easy way to... Okay, so those are the bottoms. Let's get to the tops. Joshua, what's your number three top film 
of 2022. I hate doing the bottoms. Every year, the bottoms really stress me out. Why? Because I don't like being negative. I like being positive. It's not negative. It's constructive criticism. Hmm. If All people right. are being told of their their downfalls, how can they get an up fall? How can they get on our top <laughs> list? Yeah. My number three top film of the year is a delightful Netflix film called The Mitchells vs. The Machines. It's the directorial debut of Mike Rianda, who was the creative director on a great little cartoon called Gravity Falls. Um, really fun little sort of 20-minute cartoon. And it's produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are the Lego Movie and Spider-Verse producers. Um, and it just very it just fits into those those kinds of animation where it's this really funny story about a, a family driving their eldest daughter, who's voiced by Abby Jacobson from Broad City to university, but a robot uprising gets in the way and they have to kind of navigate their way past various uh, set pieces and eventually sort of save the day and you know there's a lovely relationship between the dad and the daughter and there's a some fantastic gags uh in, one of them including a furby another one including the family dog who's a pug um which is incredibly entertaining and it just looks fantastic it's got this great animation style it's a bit surreal um I feel like Chris Miller and, and Phil Lord are really pushing animation in a way that Disney used to do before it got into this sort of cycle of just regurgitating the same crap but making it less interesting. And I think those guys are, are really leading the pack in animated films. And this is one of them. It's just so much fun. Had me howling. Can't wait to watch it again. I never, I've never heard of it. Oh, wow. Okay, well, there you go. You've got a treat for Christmas. Do you think their success post Solo is a bit of a two fingers up at Disney <laughs> if they're doing animation way better than the House of Mouse are doing? Well, yeah, I mean, I doubt I doubt Disney really cares or has noticed. Um, but yeah, it definitely feels a bit like that because they clearly think outside the box. They've got such a unique view on how to do animated films you know, they don't pander to anybody. They're fun and intelligent and just, yeah, I think that they're doing great stuff. I can't wait to see what else, what other craziness they've got up their sleeves. Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah! Who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. I'm super sorry, everyone. Let me My number myself. three top film of 2021 is a film called Annette, directed by Leo Carax. So this is... Of the two Spark films to come out this year, this is the one that came out first. It's yeah. written by Ron Mayle and Russell Mayle, who are Sparks, the new wave disco pop band, and co-written by Carax himself, from an idea by Ron and Russell Mayle, the Sparks, and the music is by Sparks. It's billed as a musical, but I'll go, st I'll go one step further. This is actually an opera. 99% of the dialogue is sung. 
Adam Driver plays a stand-up comic and he has a few scenes on stage giving a non-sung monologue, but that's basically the only non-musical sections. So everything else is sung. Marion Cotillard plays an opera singer called Anne. They declare their love for each other. The press goes nuts. They become the new it couple. They have a daughter called Annette. And, brilliantly, Annette is played by a wooden marionette puppet. (laughs) But with the singing voice uh, by uh, Hebe Griffiths. The marriage breaks down. And then during a storm, Anne is thrown overboard of their yacht and dies. Annette then becomes a singing sensation. So it's it's this crazy, baffling wildly visual and inventive form of opera fantasy all told through music and it's the complete opposite to the usual musical fare that comes out of disney or the west end or broadway it's not about big tits and smiling and yada 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 it's not like it's not about oh what a beautiful morning it's not it's not that (laughs) it's cynical and it's devilish and it's dry humored Adam Mm. Driver is, as always, brilliant. Marianne Cotillard is, as always, brilliant. And the Sparks music is, as always, brilliant. I've not seen any of uh, Leon or Leo Carax's previous films, but if Annette is anything to go by, I shall be catching up as soon as I fucking can. (laughs) Because I... I love a strong visual style. I don't know if you know that, Joshua. Really? Wow, okay. I mean, I never would have guessed. (laughs) And I love a film that sort of takes an idea or a genre and completely sort of disrupts the status quo. It is one of the most insanely enjoyable 140 minutes I have ever experienced. Wow. But it's still not your top of the year, even though it's that good. No. Mm. No, not my top of the year, which only shows just how good shit is yeah. to come. Did you see it? No, I haven't seen it, but it sounds great. It, it, so from what you said, it sounds a bit like if Paul Thomas Anderson had a baby with Tim Burton and they produced a mannequin <laughs> child. No, if Paul Thomas Anderson had a baby with Stephen Sondheim. Ah, put it on the poster. One, two, three, four. So may we My number two top film of the year is Dune, part one. Mm, So we shall come back to that. Interesting. We shall come back to that. All right. My number two is Censor, directed by Prano Bailey Bond and co-written with Anthony Fletcher. This is Prano Bailey Bond's feature debut as a film director. It tells the tale of Enid. A censor at the British Board of Film Classification, the BBFC, the lovely people that make certificates to go in front of films. <laughs> and it's set during the video nasty panic of the 1980s. 
when viewing one of the films in the screening room, she thinks she recognises her long-lost sister as one of the actresses. This starts her on a dark path into the surreal. So I took myself off to see this at Hemel Hempstead Cineworld and I fucking loved it. It is continuing a great new wave of horror that I I identify as starting with The Babadook, Raw, Mandy and last year's St Maud. And look, anything that stems from David Lynch's particular brand of surrealism is A-OK in my (laughs) book. It features one of the most terrifying jump scares I've ever experienced. My body, my body fucking tingled from the (laughs) adrenaline. And it's a true jump scare. You know, most jump scares, you can see it coming a mile away. Quiet, quiet, quiet. It's a cat. Quiet, quiet, quiet. It's a gate. This one just fucking comes out of nowhere. It is visually wonderful. You've got all these smoky, dank rooms that feel oppressive and grimy. And yes, yeah, it devolves into a bit of a baffling mystery that may or may not have any emotional weight because it may or may not make sense. But I fucking love that shit because it's born out of a love of the video nasties. It's almost set to become one of those cult classics like those video nasties, sort of a real midnight movie that I think is going to have people debating for years to come about what it actually all means and i know you've seen this yeah yeah i have it's not i wouldn't say it's one of my top films of the year um but i kind of admire what it tried to do and i think aesthetically it's it's great i fucking love it It, it's just such a great watch and it's one of those ones that you could sit down and you could just put on mandy and you could put on censor and that would be a great double feature or saint maud and censor because it's it's almost meta. It's a film about a side of filmmaking that we we don't ever usually get to see. You know, a yeah. lot of films about filmmaking are about the artistry of film, not what happens once the film is complete and you suddenly have to submit it in order to get a certificate. You know, yeah, to yeah. get that rating, and then out of that comes a horror film. It's such a it's such a brilliant genius idea, and it makes you think: Why didn't anyone think of this before? this depiction is dangerous come on ain't it i'm cutting it butchery sadism murder a wave of depraved and corrupt horror video confusing fiction with reality doug smart producer ident investment films Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. My number one film of the year is a documentary. And it's called Summer of Soul. It's directed by Amir Thompson, otherwise known as Questlove. And it pieces together unseen, unreleased footage from the 1969 Harlem Culture Festival. So it's the same year as Woodstock, which ultimately is a reason that all this footage got buried because, you know, when they tried to sell it to TV stations and all this kind of stuff, the stations were like, well, we've already got Woodstock. We don't need this. Um, And I think there was clearly a subtle vein of racism going on here as well because it's all black performers. 
Um, and so it's basically been buried for the last, what, 50 years. But it's just full of absolutely jaw-dropping footage. It's got performance, live performances from Nina Simone, The Fifth Dimension, Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight, and about 20 others who are equally mind-blowing. And it's just great because it knows that this footage is special. And so, um, so Thompson, he actually got in touch with the people who are still alive, the performers who are still alive, and films them watching the footage as well. <laughs> and so we see their reactions and we hear their memories. And it's so emotional. Um, it's just like this beautiful time capsule that nobody knew existed. Have you not seen it yet? No, it's on my Disney Plus watch list. Yeah. It was one of the first films I saw in the cinema after lockdown. And it was just this glorious welcome back, basically, where even though I was in a mask, it was horrible, it was stuffy, I had my glasses on, it was just uncomfortable. But I forgot all of that because this film just transports you back to 1969 in all its glory and and sort of like trouble um, and strife and intrigue and you know just so interesting and so relevant still it's still the conversations that people were having in 1969 are still being had today the conversation has barely moved forward and it's sort of a real reminder of um where where we've been where we are and where we should be going basically with a killer soundtrack with a killer soundtrack yeah Welcome to the Harlem Culture Festival Here in the Harlem House What time is it? You will not be able to stay home, brother You will not be able to plug in, turn on and cop out you will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rebirth, brothers. The revolution will be live. My top film of 2021 is unsurprisingly... Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. So this was your number... You put this at number three, didn't you? Two. Number two. Okay, so this is Denis Villeneuve's long-delayed adaptation of the much-loved Frank Herbert novel from 1965. For me, and we covered this already in uh, our collaboration with Chasing Chalamet, we spoke about the Denis Villeneuve film on their podcast, so also check out Chasing Chalamet. For me, this is art house big budget cinema on an epic scale it is spiritual and it is charismatic and it is visual if all blockbusters were like this i'd be a very happy boy indeed i saw it <laughs> three times yeah and i three can't times. wait to see it again it is absolutely a film you need to see on the big screen. If you can't get to the cinema, then watch it on the biggest possible screen you can at home because it is made for the big mm. format. It's not a film to watch on your phone. It's not God. even a film to watch on your laptop. Watch it on a big fucking screen. And if you haven't got a big screen, just put a cushion in front of the TV and just sit as close to the TV as you can. 
Yes. That'll do it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's fantastic. It, I feel like Denis Villeneuve is one of the best filmmakers we have working today because he's got the intelligence of Nolan, but he has the heart of, you know, not, I mean, Spielberg is the easy one, but he has the heart to, to carry with the spectacle. It's mm. not just empty spectacle. There's always an emotional through line that's occurring. Yeah, I completely agree. He definitely has sort of that intelligence of sort of Kubrick, I would actually say. Yeah. Without Kubrick, there's no Nolan. But where Kubrick didn't have that emotional connection, Denis Villeneuve absolutely has it. And even Christopher Nolan struggles with an emotional connection. He thinks an emotional connection is just killing his wives. Oh, he's always being accused of being cold. Yeah. And then, you know, I, yeah. I don't mind a cold film. I love yeah. 2001. And 2001 is incredibly cold, even though the ending is hopeful. But with with Dune, there is incredible warmth. And it comes from the relationship between Timothy Chalamet's Paul and Rebecca, Rebecca Ferguson's Ferguson. Jessica. Well, I wasn't yeah. expecting it at all. I, even though I've seen the original uh, David Lynch version of Dune, I'd forgotten. Or, I mean, that film doesn't really foreground the relationship between Paul and Jessica. So it was kind of a surprise, and having not read the book... So it was a surprise that then in Dune, it's like a, an absolutely integral part of that story. Mm. And the, the development of that relationship is, is just beautiful. It's, they're both so great together. Dune is often mentioned in light of um, the relationship between the father and the son, because obviously yeah. that's where the hierarchy and the hereditary line goes through. But really, it's definitely the the relationship between the mother and the son and from what i understand the um the role of jessica was sort of beefed up a little bit from the original source novel so good on denny Villeneuve for um sort of identifying how you tell this story in the 21st yeah. century i know you One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. That was 2021. It was. God, what Are you looking forward to anything in 2022? I don't even know what's fucking coming out. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me something about this. Okay, I'm really looking forward to the new Scream. I'm scared it's going to be bad because it's the first one without Wes Craven, but also it's like the fifth one now. So I just, I need to know what they've got up their sleeves that they're, that's sort of warranting this is occurring. Scream dies tonight. <laughs> yeah that's all i can think that is out next year I, the batman looks immense i've batman not watched anything to phenomenal. do with that i'm staying away from all the trailers stay away from the trailers but i'm i'm thinking it's looking like one of the best batmans because uh, i wasn't i wasn't really a fan of the nolan ones and hmm. it seems weird that at this time of year we usually hear of the films that have come out in america that would be on the campaign trail for oscars yeah and we usually get those films after the Oscars have come out. 
films like Don't Look Up, which is the Leo DiCaprio, Aaron's, not Aaron's, is it Aaron Sorkin? No, it's, um, it's Adam, uh, Adam McKay. McKay. Yeah, but that's going on to Netflix. That's not going into, that's not going into the cinema, that's going on Netflix. It's in cinemas for like a day, because they're trying to do oh, the, is it? if we go in cinemas for a day, we, we're eligible for Oscars kind of thing. There's, uh... Uh, and and un, what's it called? Uncharted Beasts? What are they called? The the magic films, the Harry Potter. Films, oh, Fantastic Beasts! Yeah. Fantastic Beasts. There's the Dumbledore Don't film care. coming out. <laughs> All you turfs out there, get your tickets. <laughs> yeah, line up, line up. <laughs> roll up, roll up, turfs. Get your tickets to the turf machine. <laughs> Fantastic turfs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah lots coming out lots coming out The Flash and all that shit can't really be asked with that either <laughs> there's a lot of stuff coming out next year that I just don't give a shit but what I like what I like about uh, cinema is that suddenly about three weeks before a film comes out there'll suddenly be a poster and it'll yeah. it'll you know it'll grab my attention and it'll suddenly be the thing that I want to see and it'll probably end up on my my top list you know, things well, like, this is a problem you know, with Googling 2022 movies is that it's only ever going to give you all the big, boring studio crap that you don't really want to see. So all the like really yeah. interesting, smaller art housey films or even like mid-budget films, they're not going to be on this list because they're not high profile enough yet to actually fit the algorithm. Yeah, and also these films have been given their release date about True. two years, three years in yeah. advance. I mean, look yeah. at Marvel and Star Wars. They knew what they were doing five years in advance. And like um, the guy, Simu Liu, Liu, who did, who was um, Shang-Chi, he was cast like three years before he, he even was appeared born. in a Marvel Three film. years before he was born, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. That's how far ahead they work. That's how far ahead. This embryo's got work. heroic properties. <laughs> he, This embryo has brilliant wrists. We could put 10 ring slash bracelets <laughs> on this one. Yes, so 2022 is shaping up to be... A year. <laughs> yeah, just a normal year. A 12-month, 365-day year. We're off to walk the halls of Blockbuster, trying to find something to watch. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut! Cut!